0: Welcome to The Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. The Learning Scientist Podcast
1: is funded by
0: The Welcome Trust. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode Island College.
1: And I'm Dr. Yana Weinstein, a professor at UMass Lowell.
0: And together, we co-founded The Learning Scientists. We apply cognitive psychology to education for teachers, students, and parents. And over the last six months, we have been talking about the six strategies for effective learning. And we've identified these six strategies because they are the ones that cognitive psychologists have identified as the most effective and the most broadly applicable at producing learning. And so we've done every month one podcast for each of the six strategies. We've covered spaced practice, retrieval practice, elaboration, and and specifically elaborative interrogation, interleaving, concrete examples, and today, for our sixth podcast in this series, we're going to talk about dual coding.
1: So, Jana, why don't you tell us what dual coding is? So, in its basic form, dual coding is just the idea of combining visual information, such as images and drawings and pictures, with verbal information, that is, words. And There are two important aspects to dual coding and I'll talk about each one in turn. The first one has to do with the idea of making things more concrete rather than abstract and then the second one is the idea of having multiple channels or retrieval cues by which you can remember the information. So let me talk about the abstract versus concrete first. We did talk about this quite a bit in the concrete examples episode but I'd like to talk about it again now and link it to this idea of dual coding or combining pictures and words. So the way that our memory system functions is that it is easier for us to hook onto and remember information that is more concrete than abstract. So for example if I give you a word such as truth you might remember it less easily later than if I give you a concrete word such as house. And part of the reason why that might be is that the word house or other concrete words like table, tree, etc. are easier to visualize or form an image of or draw than the abstract words such as truth, guilt. What's another good one, Megan? Um, Abstract. (laughs) Abstract. Abstract is pretty abstract. You know, if I try to ask you to draw the word abstract... I can't even imagine what you would do with that. Maybe you would just draw some random dot pattern, but that wouldn't necessarily represent the concept of abstraction very well. Maybe abstract art, I could
0: just scribble. Well, and if I was a good artist, I I would produce
1: something nice, but for me it would be a scribble. But it's difficult to illustrate that concept concretely. Whereas things that are easy to illustrate concretely, such as physical objects that you can draw, are more easy to remember and so this is where dual coding comes in if information is described only verbally even if that information is rather concrete in nature so for example a long example for example a long example yeah <laughs> um so you know a long example that's describing an abstract concept that will still feel potentially a little bit abstract until you actually draw a picture of it. And then it will have to, by its very nature, become more concrete because now you've drawn it out and that cannot really be abstract. So that's part of the reason why dual coding can be helpful. And so a way to get students to focus on the concrete information presented could be to have them draw out the information that they're trying to learn. Another aspect of dual coding is the fact that when we're encoding information, both with words and with pictures, we then, according to the old theory by Paivio from the 60s and 70s, have two different channels or two different retrieval cues by which we can remember the information. So the way I like to talk about it is, let's say you encode some kind of concept with both words and then a picture that is relevant and goes along with that concept, later on when you're sitting in the exam and you're trying to remember what that concept is and how to describe it, even if you've forgotten how to describe it in words, that picture might come to you, you might you know, draw it again and then based on that, you might then have triggered some of the memories that are more verbal and that you can use to actually answer the question in writing. Right now we're talking about dual coding and creating concrete
0: representations in a verbal format. It's already getting a little bit difficult to describe things that are particularly verbal. So we'll definitely put some of this information in the show notes so that you can see it and have links to other information.
1: And so an important aspect though of dual coding that Megan's gonna talk about is how it differs from the idea of learning styles. Yeah, so when we start talking about visual and
0: verbal and pictures, words, hearing, even doing, we start to think about learning styles. And learning styles is fundamentally different from this idea of dual coding. There's definitely some overlap, but learning styles and dual coding are not the same thing. And so I want to make sure to touch on what learning styles is and, frankly, some of the issues with the learning styles theory and differentiate that from dual coding. So learning styles is this idea that each individual student or even you know, each individual person has their own style of learning. So, for example, a student under this theory could be very visual or very verbal. You can also have auditory or kinesthetic learners, and there's a number of different ways of assessing what a student's style might be. Unfortunately, many of these assessments cost money and they they do take up time, and so there's, there's that problem with it just to start. But according to the learning styles theory, you'd have to identify a student in your classroom's style... And then match instruction to that individual style for the student. So if you have a student who is particularly visual then you would need to match your instruction and give only visual information to that student in order to maximize their learning. So, This is sometimes called the matching hypothesis. This idea that if we assess learning style and we You know, sort of identify or diagnose an individual style, we then have to match our instruction or match the materials to that style in order to maximize learning. The problem with this is that there is very, very little evidence that this matching hypothesis actually plays out. So it's not usually the case that a student who is visual has to have the visuals in order to learn across any number of different types of materials. In reality, most of us learn best when we combine these different formats. Now, students definitely have preferences. So there are certainly students who prefer to have pictures or prefer to read or prefer to listen to somebody explain some something, something to them, etc. Those preferences don't necessarily mean that the student is going to learn better when given their specific preference. And actually, Different subjects really have styles more than students do. So, for example, imagine trying to learn how to ride a bike by reading a book about it. Well, of course, in that situation, you're going to need to do some kinesthetic learning, right? You're going to need to actually try to ride the bike. Certainly you can read a little bit about it. You can watch someone do it first. You might even want someone around giving you some verbal instructions, but ultimately you need that kinesthetic aspect. There are also other subjects that are much more difficult to uh, visualize in a uh, visual way. So calculus, for example. A lot of times calculus you have to learn by having someone explain it to you or reading a book. It's going to be very difficult to produce visual learning in calculus or kinesthetic learning in calculus. Probably not impossible, but definitely difficult
1: and so that's an issue that can happen where if a student thinks that they're a visual learner so to speak they might suddenly get to calculus and then think they can't do it because they're a visual learner of course that's not the reason why they can't do it maybe it's just because they're not used to it yet or it hasn't been explained well or they need to practice it more but they might have this idea that they're unable to do it simply because it's not visual.
0: And that idea that they're unable to do it might actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy, which basically is just that the student thinks they can't do it, and so then when they make an attempt, they sort of have gotten it in their heads that they can't, and that's going to negatively affect, it, affect their performance, and then it turns out they, quote-unquote, can't. Yeah, and so a lot of times in classrooms, the idea of learning styles leads to something kind of like dual coding. So it would be very difficult for a teacher with a classroom of 25 to 30 students to diagnose each individual student and then sit individually with groups of visual students, groups of verbal, groups of auditory, groups of kinesthetic, and give four different lessons. And frankly, there are probably plenty more styles than just those four that are out there. What ends up happening is the teacher tends to present the lesson with all of these different modalities mixed into the lesson. And that's really great. That's actually more like dual coding or multimodal learning. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. We want multimodal Um, instruction and we want dual coding. It's just we don't want to think of it as the visual piece within our lesson is for these specific visual students while the auditory piece or the kinesthetic piece or the verbal pieces are all for other students. Really all of the different aspects are for all of the students to help them grasp the information.
1: Now as with most things there is such a thing as too much of a good thing with dual coding. The principle of dual coding does not state that for everything that you show verbally you must find a picture. In some cases that could be too much. It could lead to potentially cognitive overload. The other problem with it is that sometimes we, in, in our efforts to find pictures, we might find pictures that are only tangentially relevant and sort of illustrate as we're talking but don't necessarily specifically illustrate the concepts that we're covering. I know I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I just want my slides to look very visually appealing and I find a picture that's not necessarily exactly illustrating what I'm talking about. And the issue with that is something that's been called seductive details. And so what the idea is there, and this is particularly important in things like textbooks, written material, where a picture appears on the side and it's really just there to, you know, make things a bit more fun or brighten things up and what it ends up doing is distracting the students. So we need to make sure that when we are picking out pictures to go along with written text or even in our slides we want those pictures to be relevant and to be helpful to helping the students understand what they're trying to learn as opposed to merely entertaining them.
0: And of course, you know, sometimes we're adding pictures purely just to get an individual to even open the thing that we want them to read or even look at it. And of course, attention is step one, right? Having a picture and having them read some of the information might be better than having them not bother to read it at all. And so we, we are guilty of that even within our own blog. We put tons of pictures into the blog that are only tangentially related, but the idea here is that if we really want the students to, um, yeah, if we really want the students to pay attention, we might need to add these pictures. But it's not necessarily great to keep adding a whole bunch of irrelevant pictures. It's best to make them relevant. Another thing that you can do to try and prevent some of this cognitive overload is to slow down. So when the students reading their own book, they have control over how quickly or how carefully they read and how much time they spend looking at the picture. That's less true when we have a presentation and slides and lecture notes that we're giving in class. And so if we're going very quickly, the students might spend the time looking at the picture and thinking about the picture rather than focusing on the words or what we're saying. But if we're able to slow down and even stop and verbally describe the picture and how it relates to the slides, that might actually reduce some of that cognitive overload. And if we've explained how the picture relates to the material, even if it seems obvious to us, we talked last month about how making the link for students is sometimes difficult. If we describe and explain even just why we have that picture there, that later on might serve as a cue when the students see the picture. They say, oh, yeah. Dr. Samaraki or Dr. Weinstein or whoever explained that it's related in this way and might even prompt them to practice retrieval.
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about how students can use dual coding in their studying. One of the issues that sometimes comes up when I tell my students that what they could try to do, for example, is to draw a picture based on whatever they're reading, is they say, well, I'm not very good at drawing, right? So you have some students who say they're visual learners, they have some students who say they're not good at drawing, but none of this actually matters. It's not about producing pretty artwork or, you know, something that you're going to be proud to show off to your friends really only you need to understand it and I think Megan mentioned this a while back that in a way it's kind of almost a good thing if you draw it out not really perfectly so that then when you look at it later you have to work a little bit to remember what it was exactly you were trying to represent that's a form of retrieval practice with the picture being your cue so when students are studying what they could do is produce pictures or even partial pictures depicting what they're trying to learn and then take a look at them later to use as um, cued retrieval practice another thing that the students can do is take a look at pictures that already exist such as those in their textbooks and try to cover up the text and then explain in their own words what the picture or diagram is representing
0: Yeah. So then you could actually work your way up to where you are writing out what you know from memory or drawing what you know from memory or even doing both at the same time so that you're actually completely practicing retrieval. So when you're covering up the words or covering up the pictures, you're using cues that are there to try and reconstruct it in a different format. If you work your way up to where you're bringing it all to mind from memory, that's even better.
1: And former student of mine, Rachel Adranya, has this great blog post on our blog about how to use pictures while studying. And one of the ideas she has is for how you can practice retrieval with images. And so what she suggests is that you can grab a stack of flashcards, write a term or concept on one side, and then go through the stack and draw a picture of each concept by just looking at the name of that concept, not looking back in your book or anything like that. And then you have complete flashcards with a picture on one side and, you know, a term on the other side, and you can use both sides to test yourself. So that's pretty cool. We'll link to that in the show notes.
0: Yeah. And so... Given that this is our sixth month, and we have the six main episodes for each of the six strategies, we've been talking about them somewhat in isolation, but we keep referring back, especially to retrieval practice. And in this episode, we talked about concrete examples. And really, all six strategies can be used together. It's not the case that you have to decide, okay, today I'm going to use dual coding, and I'm only going to use dual coding and absolutely nothing else. Or today, I'm going to use retrieval practice and nothing else. Really, these strategies work really well when you combine them. In future episodes, we'll talk about ways of combining these six strategies so that they can be used effectively together for both teachers and students. If you haven't done so already, please go on iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It really helps others find the podcast so that they can learn about the signs of learning,
1: too. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. The Learning Scientist podcast is funded by The Wellcome Trust.